All right, well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful that you have joined us here this morning, so thankful to be here with you. I find, or I hope that you find the church, I find it to be a refuge amid the storms around us, and I hope you find it to be that as well, as we come together with like-minded, like-minded believers. We live in a world, as I alluded to earlier in the Romans 1, praying from, you know, from the Romans 1 passage, we live in a world that is crumbling around us. As we look around our culture, I mean, if you're not blind, uh, you can see the darkness and the decay. As, as an older guy, I, I, I admit that I'm an older guy, I have witnessed our culture continuing to spiral downward and, and out of control. Earlier, again, we read Romans 1, and in those verses, the Apostle Paul describes what happens to a culture given over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And we see that very clearly, even people worshiping trees and, and worshiping the animals and worshiping the earth and, and those things instead of worshiping the Creator. In my lifetime, we are actually becoming more and more of a Romans 1 culture, as I said earlier. Just last week, I saw a story about one of our political parties, I'll let you guess which one, defended, defending people who buy little children for pleasure. I mean, they're actually defending them. They came up with all kinds of reasons for defending these wretched pedophiles who destroy children. They even tried to say that these pedophiles were victims themselves. And so it made it okay to continue that sin if that's what happened to them. The church is, in the midst of all of this, uh, the, instead of being a strong uh, uh, presence and being a refuge, the church has actually struggled, that is, with relevancy as the culture around us continues to disintegrate. Many people call for a change, for change in the church to meet the demands of our changing world. They point to dead and dying churches charging that we are failing to be relevant to our culture. And the large denominations, especially the more liberal congregations, are experiencing uh, incredibly uh, major falling membership. Our experience in 2020 with COVID actually drastically changed the demographics of churches. Many churches, as you know, shut down their services during that time, opting to go online. Only a small number continued to meet uh, despite government, governmental guidelines and restrictions. Many people left their local churches never to return to them, never to return to them. Many, hopefully some of them have come to more solid churches that didn't stop meeting, but nonetheless, they never returned to their original church. So we've seen all of this change. Today, many people who claim Christ as their Lord do not regularly attend a, a local church. They argue that they're part of the universal church, but that they don't need to be a part of the local church. Again, as an, as an older Christian, who, Christian who's been a, a Christian for decades now, I have witnessed many of these changes in real time. All of these things are occurring. As all these things are occurring, our young folks are looking for hope in the world, and they're not finding, finding it in the church. As a matter of fact, they see the church, many of them see the church is out of touch with the realities that they're facing, that we, we don't understand. They're looking for something that transcends this world, but they see the church as being out of step. Young people are groping for answers to the world's most significant problems, like you and I are, 
But young Christians struggle to see how the local church provides the answers that they are seeking. As a matter of fact, it seems woefully, again, out of step. That is the church. That's where organizations like those who sponsor the He Gets Us commercials take advantage. That's the commercials that uh, you may have seen during the Super Bowl, if you watch the Super Bowl. Many people don't recognize the spiritual battle that is currently facing, uh, that we currently face in the world and in the church. There's a battle in the church and in the world for the truth of God's Word. And there's a battle, uh, you can even say it this way, there's a battle for the identity of who Jesus is, the identity of Christ. The He Gets Us campaign presents a humanistic portrait of Jesus that's devoid of truth. You see, those who are behind that campaign see truth as divisive. On their website, if you look at their website, they ask, how did the story of Jesus, the world's greatest love story, get twisted into a tool to judge, harm, and divide? That's what it says on the website. That's their question. In their opinion, for example, the LGBTQ plus question is divisive, and it inhibits our ability to reach people with the love of Christ. So we shouldn't talk about that part because we want to reach them with His love. On their website, they state, many of us who represent Jesus have made people in the LGBTQ plus community feel judged and excluded, and others have simply ignored their stories and lived experiences, end quotes. People, especially young people, resonate with these statements. I think we have to recognize that because they don't want to be seen as unloving as they speak the truth. But as Christians, here's the deal. Here's what we have to recognize. We cannot separate the truth from love. We can't separate them. It's like a, it's like a two-legged stool. It fall, it'll fall, fall on itself. Scripture is full of encouragements to speak and uphold the truth in love, And Scripture also shows us that our God is compassionate. It says in Exodus 34, we've heard this many times in this church, Yahweh, Yahweh God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You see, God, the God we serve, the God we worship here at Grace Bible Church and at churches that are like-minded around the world, we serve a God who is a merciful God who shows mercy toward those who do not deserve it, including, by the way, you and I. No doubt, in John 1, 14 and 15, or one fourteen, that is, the Apostle John picked up on this truth of, of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 by saying that we saw His glory, or we beheld His glory, uh, that would be the glory of the Lord, as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And so we see then that the Lord Jesus is one who upholds grace and truth. But we can never forget the rest of the promise that we see in Exodus 34, and we, so we've already seen that he's a God of mercy, but it says this. It says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, we're no longer to be children as the church. We're no longer to be children. Paul says in Ephesians 4, no longer to be children tossed here and there, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by, the, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. 
And so when we look at something like the He Gets Us commercials, we have to be wise and we have to understand doctrinally what is going on there so that we can, uh, so that we can fight against it. As Christians, we are, are growing, we, we are growing, or we are, as Christians who are growing, that is, in maturity, we need to be speaking the truth in love, and we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is Christ. That's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 14. We need to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church and that He is full of grace and truth. And we are to represent Christ and recognize that the church, the local church, Grace Bible Church even, is the pillar and the support of the truth. And we can't fall back. That's that's 1 Timothy 3.15, that we are the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the support of truth. Our lives and Christian walk then must reflect that Jesus is the Lord of the church and that Jesus is our Lord, the Lord of our life. Just listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 17-24. He says this, Therefore I say and testify in the Lord that you are to no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, but it applies to us. If indeed you have heard Him and were taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus to lay, to lay aside in reference to your formal conduct the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man which is in the likeness of God which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth beloved church the truth divides the truth divides. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace with God, but it does not guarantee peace in this fallen world. Do y'all understand that? That we are guaranteed through the gospel to have peace with God, which is the peace that we need. But it does not guarantee that we will have peace in this world. As a matter of fact, our Lord said in Matthew 10, 34-37, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and so forth and so on. A few weeks ago, we began to answer the question, what is the church? According to Paul, we've already seen that the church, the church is the pillar and the support of truth. But the question is, where does the church derive its authority? <clears throat> where, where do we, as the local body of Christ at Grace Bible Church, where do we derive our authority? And the other question is, is do we need to change? In this culture that we're dealing with, do we need to change to become more relevant? Well, let's attempt to answer those questions and more from our passage today. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, I hope that our people see that we stand against a world that is intent on pushing agendas that are against you and your word. 
I pray that our people will see that as the church, we are to be the pillar and the support of the truth, and that that truth does divide. But ultimately, the truth brings peace with you, and ultimately will bring peace with other men and women. Lord, I pray that we would see those things in the right way, and that we would declare, not shrink back as the church in declaring the truth, even in the midst of a a crooked generation. In Christ's name, amen. Let's pick back up in Matthew 16, 13. Matthew 16, 13, if you have your Bibles in front of you. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Here in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we've been going through three vital insights into the nature and function of the church. We saw first that Jesus has called his people based on the complete realization of his identity. He has called his people, secondly, on the consummate reality of his work. And third, we, have, we see that he, or we'll see today, that Jesus has called his people based on the clear recognition of his power. Now, let me quickly walk through a, a review of the prior two sermons in this series. You probably recall that in Matthew 16, 13, we find that our Lord was with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. You may recall that Caesarea Philippi sat at the base of a, a mount called Hermon near the mouth of the Jordan River. Prior to Jesus' time, time, the area around there came to be known for its pagan worship. Even today, you can go there, if you feel safe to go to Israel at this point, but you can go there and see the remains of areas used for the worship of false gods. There's actually a temple that was built there for the god Pan in the cave at the mouth of the Jordan. Now, you may recall that the area that they went to was isolated. So it was sort of a retreat like we have coming up on Saturday. Uh, Jesus and his disciples went there to escape the pressures of the crowd and to escape from the Jewish religious leaders. It is in this place that Jesus began to unveil the fullness of the Father's plan to his disciples. Now, with it, let's look at the first or review the first insight. Jesus has called his people based on the complete realization of his identity. Now look back at your text again in verse 13. He was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, as you may recall, we looked at Mark and Luke's account, and Jesus in those accounts asked the straightforward question, who do people say that I am? Now, we noted the significance of Matthew adding the phrase, the Son of Man. This harkens back to Daniel 7, 13, and 14 in the Old Testament, where Daniel gives a vision of seeing one like a Son of Man who the Father gave dominion, glory, and a kingdom. 
I, now, I've argued that Jesus was just asking what people, wasn't just asking what people thought of him. He wanted to give his disciples what I would call a complete realization of his identity. Look at your text in verse 14, where the disciples gave him some examples of what they were hearing. They said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus actually redirects the question, and he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And look, at, look back at your text for Simon Peter's answer in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ultimately, Peter identified Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, who is the Son of Man and the Son of God. It is on the basis, then, of Jesus' full identity as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, that his disciples would proclaim his name throughout the world. It is the complete realization of <clears throat> his identity that brings us, Grace Bible Church, together as a church even today. You see, beloved, Jesus is fully man, and he is fully God. He is also the Messiah, the Christ, and he's also the true king of the church. But ultimately, we proclaim him as the true king of the world. There's no doubts. There's no doubts. That's who he is. And the disciples at this point in Matthew chapter 16 were coming to this complete realization of his identity. And that realization would shape the rest of their lives. They were beginning to completely understand that Jesus is the true king, and they were beginning to understand the implications of that. Now, as Grace Bible Church, we had the implication to us is that we serve the one true king, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. There's only one plan of ministry. There's only one plan of ministry. And Paul sums it up in Colossians 1.28. He says, Him we proclaim, that would be Christ, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That is our ministry plan. That's it. It's, it's that simple. There's only one critical question in life that you have to answer and the entire world will ultimately have to answer is, have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? That's it. That's the ministry plan because we proclaim him as the king. So, so we have seen that Jesus has called his people based on the complete realization of his identity, who he is. Let's look at the second critical insight. Jesus has called his people based on the consummate reality of his work. Look at your text in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Ultimately, Jesus blesses those, even down to today, even in Grace Bible Church and, and other churches that are like-minded around us, uh, that Jesus blesses those who follow Peter and the rest of the disciples in the realization of Jesus' identity. Ultimately, that means that we follow the Christ that they follow. It is only the Father, then, who reveals this truth to whom he will. So if you're sitting here today and you believe that Jesus is the true king, it is only the Father who has revealed that to you. This is the first reality of his work. The, first, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit give eternal blessings upon God's people. God sovereignly chose before the foundation of the world those who will come to the knowledge of the truth, the complete realization of his identity. That's Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. <clears throat> 
And again, it is the Father who reveals these truths to us. Only the Father can give us this complete realization. Now, only the Father can reveal to us the consummate reality of His work as well. Look back at your text in verse 18. And I also say to you, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, this is a play on words. Peter's name is translated from a Greek word for a small stone. The, the word translated rock is a different form of that same word, but it refers to a rocky mountain or a peak. So even though some see Peter as the rock upon which he will build his church or his assembly, the truth is much, much more robust. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul gives us the full interpretation of Jesus' pronouncement back in Matthew 16. In Ephesians 2, 19-20, he told the church at Ephesus that God's household, the church, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. You see, the early church, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching as the foundation of the church. But what we have to recognize is that Jesus is the cornerstone of this grand foundation. He, in fact, is the Word made flesh. Therefore, the church is made up of those who have come to realize or have a complete realization of Jesus' identity and those who have come to understand the consummate reality of His work and gathering His worshipers by building His church. Now look back at your text in verse 18. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Ultimately, those in Christ, who are in Christ, those who are truly in the church, who are part of the church, can rest in the reality that He has overcome our greatest enemy. He died and was buried, and in that He defeated sin and death by rising from the grave and by ascending to the Father. And because of Christ's powerful work, we who are in Christ, we who are in Christ's church are assured that we have been made alive with Him and that we have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. What an amazing reality that in Christ that we, are, we have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies. Make no mistake, Christ has promised to build His church, and Christ has also promised to protect and deliver His church. And we know that because Christ actually bought the church with His very own blood. We see that in Acts 20, 28. As such, as such His church can be assured of His love and His care. And it also assures us of His intimacy with the church because we are the bride of Christ. Now here's what's amazing. This is what's amazing and what many people stumble over. Beloved, all these promises apply to every church in the church age that is truly His church. All of these promises apply to every local church, including Grace Bible Church including Grace Bible Church. That's powerful. All those promises apply to each individual in this church. It applies to each of you, but only if you have faith in Christ Jesus. So now we've, we've seen these first two insights, and, and I've covered them in a more full way in the last two sermons. Now that we've seen the first two insights, Jesus has called 
his people based on a complete realization of his identity and the consummate realization of his work. Let's study the third critical insight. Jesus has called his people based on the clear recognition of his power. Look at your text in Matthew 16, 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now first I want you to notice the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, in his gospel, highlights this phrase throughout his writing. Ultimately, along with Jesus as the king, the the kingdom of heaven which Jesus is the king, king of the kingdom of heaven, is Matthew's greatest theme. In Matthew 3, 1 and 2, John the Baptist came preaching, if you look at the text, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew four seventeen, after John the Baptist, Jesus came preaching the same message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're just talking about the first Uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 now, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 5, 10, just after that, he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Uh, Again, uh, well, I must have given... That got cut off, but that, it says again, the kingdom of heaven. The phrase kingdom of heaven could be understand, understood, though, then as the kingdom which is from heaven. Now, ultimately, what we have to recognize is that it refers to God's sovereign rule. And what we have to see is that God is now, at this point today, and we see that He's ascended to the Father and that He is ruling and reigning from heaven. He is the ultimate ruler and king of His creation. Now, you might ask, and, and I think it's a good question, right now, God allows, has allowed our earthly realm, this realm, to be ruled by the ruler of the power of the, of the air. Satan and the demonic realm has, is currently ruling uh, on, on this earth. We see that, Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. You see, what we need to recognize is that God's authority and His rule is absolute, while Satan's authority and rule is derived. Do you all understand what I'm saying? God is absolute in his rule and authority. Satan is, has a derived uh, rule and authority. You can see this as an example in Job chapter 1, where God gives Satan the permission to strike all that Job owned. You remember, remember that story where he, said, he says in, in Job 1.12, Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only do not send forth your hand toward him. One day, one day, the kingdom of heaven with King Jesus as the ruler will conquer the kingdoms of this world. You remember Matthew 3 where Satan said, Here's the kingdoms of the world. You can go get them now, and, and you know, that, that was a temptation. Well, ultimately, Jesus will be the, the ultimate king, or he is the ultimate king, we'll, but, but will rule this uh, earth, heaven and earth that is, that is itself. And now, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declared that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, but we haven't seen that come to full fruition, at least on the earth. Now, this brings up the difficult question that must be addressed. If this is the case, why don't we see, if he is the ultimate ruler, Matthew 28, 
Why don't we see his authority fully inaugurated here on earth today? Why does it seem that the demonic realm has such a tight grip on this world? Well, the answer lies in 16, 19 through 20. Look back at your text in 19. Notice he says, I will give you the king, keys of the kingdom of heaven. The, the Greek word translated keys has the idea of an instrument of opening a gate or a door. Ultimately, though, they symbolize power and authority. You see, this power, this power may be possessed by the knowledge of Christ's identity and his work. In uh, Luke 11:52, the, the, the Jesus pronounced woe on the scholars of the law, and he said this, he said in 11:52, "For you have taken away the key of knowledge, you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." So by his death, burial and resurrection, Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth. He has triumphantly ascended to the Father where he currently rules. But here in Matthew 16:19, Jesus personally gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter, who represented the rest of the disciples. As such, Jesus gives the authority to bind and loose to Peter and the rest of the disciples. Now, in Acts, in the book of Acts, we're going to see this authority handed down to local churches planted by the apostles and others. Look back at your text in Matthew 16, 19. He says, whatever you bind on earth, so he's explaining these keys, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, that's a very unusual, a uh, little bit of a, a clunky, if you will, uh, construction. It's, it's unusual in the Greek text as well. By, you, by saying it this way, Jesus is giving the very authority of heaven to Peter and disciples. the disciples. Remember, Christ today is, is reigning from the throne, but he's giving the authority of the throne to Peter and the disciples and to the church, ultimately. In other words, let's put it this way, when they are acting according to God's will, the actions they did or do, and the decisions that they make have already been made in heaven. They have the very authority of heaven. This includes planting churches and ultimately for the, the apostles authoring the New Testament and authorizing the New Testament. As you study the New Testament, though, these are the exact actions we see them taking. This authority, then, we need to recognize, extends to the local church when we are building on the apostles' foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. I hope you can see that, that that apostolic authority, they wrote the, the New Testament, they wrote the, the New Testament, which is the Word of God, and as we follow the New Testament, as we build on the Apostles' Foundation with Christ as the cornerstone, as we do that as a church, we have the very authority of heaven. And in doing so, again, we are acting according to that authority. Now, what does the church, what does Jesus then authorize the church to do? What, is, what authority has been given by our Lord? Let me give you a few examples from the New Testament. Look at, or we've already looked at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, but you can look there as, right now in that passage. Jesus gave them all, said, told them that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what does Jesus want his disciples to do with that authority? Well, here, here's what he wants them to do. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus gave his church the authority to make disciples. And he do, we do that by preaching the gospel. We do that by preaching the good news of what Christ has accomplished. Now, I don't believe that Jesus, Jesus was saying make disciples of the nations as political entities. I believe he commands us to preach the gospel to individuals in each nation. Now, as we do that, we're going to see that those people in, end up influencing the nations, but he primarily wants us to preach the gospel to individuals in the nations. And as such, we're going to see men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation surrounding the throne of God, because that's what we're doing, is that we're preaching the good news to the nations, and ultimately that we're going to see them, Revelation 5, 9, because you were slain, speaking of, of Christ, and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So ultimately, that's the work that we've been authorized to do, according to Matthew 28, 19 through, or 18 through 20. Now in this, we see that the gospel is the key. That's the, that's the power. The key to opening the kingdom of heaven to all believers and locking it shut against unbelievers. That's the, that's the power that we've been given. We've also, in Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples to be baptizing, or to, they are to be baptizing new converts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you need to understand that baptism, according to the New Testament, is an outward declaration of an inward, a new inward reality that you have died to sin that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, and that you've been raised to newness of life in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, for also, for also by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Now we see this authority, the, the, the authority of making and baptizing believers, uh, dramatically manifested in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. You see, Peter took his stand in Acts chapter 2, and he preached one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And at the end of that sermon, he gave the church's first evangelistic message. He preached the gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ, and the Lord added 3,000 souls to the church. That's according to Acts 2.38. He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 41, this is Acts 2.41, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added 3,000 souls. Now I love the next verse, this is Acts 2.42, because it sets the pattern for all faithful churches throughout the church age. So we see this continuation through the church age, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And so we see the pattern set even for Grace Bible Church that we ought to be devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We ought to be devoting ourselves to the fellowship. We ought to be devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread and to praying. Now, it's interesting and informative that Paul recognized, that the Apostle Paul recognized a church like the Colossian church 
You remember the Colossian church, the church at Colossae uh, in, in, that Paul wrote to in the book of, or the letter to, to the, Colossians, the Colossians? That church was planted by a name, man, man named Epaphras. And yet Paul recognized that church as a, as a true church. In his letter uh, to, the, to that church, Paul clearly gave them instruction to continue the pattern set by Christ and the, the apostles. He instructed them, and we heard this earlier, he instructed them to proclaim Christ and admonishing every, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Again, that is the ministry plan for all faithful churches. And we see that clearly laid out in the New Testament. Now, the second authority that we have, so we have the authority uh, to, uh, to make and baptize disciples. The second authority that he gives us is to discipline sinning Christians within our midst. He gave the authority to discipline and restore uh, disobedient Christians in, our, in, in the church. So now this process... It has, it has as its goal a full re- restoration. That's the hope of the process of discipline. Now, the purity of the, of the body of Christ is the ultimate goal in doing this. If the guilty party, this is Matthew 18, if the guilty party continues in their sin, they are to be excommunicated, that is to be treated like a Gentile and or like the Gentile and the tax collector. Now, after describing that process. Now, this is, again, the the authority that we've been given as a church, one of the authorities that we've been given. Jesus gives the same phrase in Matthew 18, 18 through 19. He says this, which ties it back to Matthew 16. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Then he says this, we've all heard this verse, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And so we see that there's a church and we see that there's discipline that's being done in the church and God is promising when that discipline is carried out faithfully that it's being done in the power of heaven according to the authority of heaven. And again, the, the process that we go through in Matthew 18 is to restore the Christian, but ultimately to protect the purity of the bride of Christ. Because when we are protected and we have purity, then we are going to be, we're going to have that authority and power from heaven, and it's going to be, we're going to flourish in that way. Ultimately, Ultimately, we, heaven is in full agreement with the actions that we take if we're doing them according to the will of God. Now, in Acts, there's, two, well, there's one example in Acts of, of church discipline. It happens uh, in Acts chapter 5. It's a, it's a rather famous story. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about uh, the price of some property they sold, and they held back some of the proceeds while they represented to the church that they'd given the total amount. Amazingly, it's kind of cool here uh, how this works. It was Peter who asked them why they had done this wicked thing. So we see here that, again, the keys of, of the kingdom, and we see this kingdom authority being played out here with Peter. And Peter was the one Jesus was talking to. So when Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And, and to keep back some of the price of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? 
You have lied to, not lied to men, but to God. And after he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Now, you want to talk about a church discipline that would get your attention? That's church discipline that would get your attention, right? And the exact same thing happened to his wife, Sapphira. And so we see then, uh, graphically, amazingly, uh, the, the, that heaven is, is, that Peter is speaking with the very authority of heaven, and that God struck him dead, Ananias, and struck Sapphira dead as well. We also see this happen, uh, this church discipline happen in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, in this case, uh, this is at the church of Corinth, the Apostle Paul was appalled to hear of a case of sexual immorality that had gone unchecked in the church. Someone, uh, sadly and tragically, someone had had his father's wife, according to Paul. And Paul tells them in his letter, he tells them that, this, that the one who did this deed must be removed from their midst. Again, he must be church disciplined. Why? Because of the purity of the body. Paul, Paul tells them that they must deliver such a one to Satan for the, deflux, the destruction of his flesh. Now, here's the, here's the understanding, uh, here's the key to understanding the point of church discipline. The reason why he was handed over for the destruction of his flesh was so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Remember, what we want is full restoration, and what we want is purity in the body. And so we see then there's the authority within the church of the very authority of heaven to carry out church discipline. And in 2 Corinthians 2, we find that that particular man had repented and had asked forgiveness from the body of Christ. And, and what we have to recognize is that is a glorious result. That's an incredible result, an amazing result that only is, is what is only uh, comes from heaven being involved in that, from the Spirit of God moving in that man's heart so that he might repent. And in 2 Corinthians 2.8, Paul encouraged them to reaffirm their love for him. What an amazing, what an amazing example of, of this purity, this concept of purity in the church being worked out along with restoration. Now, I want to point out one other thing that pertains to Peter. You may recall in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus is speaking directly to Peter. He said, when he says, I will give you the king's keys of the kingdom of heaven. Earlier in this series, we saw that Jesus used Peter as the bridge to the Gentiles. Now, we know that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but as we saw, Peter was the bridge from the original 12 apostles, minus Judas plus Matthias. Um, but in, in, Jesus, in, in Acts 1.8, Jesus told the original apostles that they would receive power and they would be their witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the world or end of the earth. Now, they may not have understood it at the time. They may not have fully comprehended it because right now at that point, it was mainly a Jewish religion. It was a sect of the Jewish religion. Christianity, that is. But they may not have understood it, but the gospel would eventually be taken to the Gentiles. And it would be through Peter's preaching that the gospel first came to the Gentiles. And as such, here's the point, Peter held the keys to the kingdom for the Gentiles. So we see a direct connection between what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 19 and what Peter does in Acts chapter 10. 
Because of the involvement of Peter and the apostles, the Gentile church finds its foundation in the Jewish apostles along with a Jewish Messiah. Now, Donald Hagner, who's a commentator, he writes and wrote a commentary on Matthew, he says this, it is especially, so I didn't just bring this out of thin air, by the way, I, I, I actually have had others see this as well. It says, he says this, it is especially in Acts 10 that Peter makes the most exemplary use of the keys and of his authority to loose. Then he says this in parentheses, had Paul been the initiator of Gentile evangel- evangelization, it perhaps would have been forever suspect. Matthew's Jewish Christian readers would have taken pride in the knowledge, get this, that Christianity was Jewish before the influx of the Gentiles and that the church as a whole depended upon its Jewish roots in Peter and the apostles. And so we see then that Peter is then the, he is the, the key to, he had the key to open up the kingdom to the Gentiles. Now, let me give you, I was going to give you a few truths that, that flow out of this, but since we're close to the end of time, I'm going to move forward from that. But if you have your handout, I, get, I gave you a, a, a synopsis of the truths that flow, flow, flow out of this. But I want to, I'm just going to skip ahead, ahead here in my sermon just to save a little bit of time. Here's the, here's what, here's the, the point for us of all of this of the, ultimately the authority of Christ. If we want to demonstrate the power and the authority of Christ to a lost world, we need to continue the exact ministry given by Jesus and carried out by, the rest of, by Peter and the rest of the apostles, including Paul. And we saw all the things that, all the implications we need to carry out Making disciples, baptizing disciples, we need to carry out church discipline, keeping the, the body pure. I've been reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray, and in that biography, Ian, Ian Murray describes his, Martin Lloyd-Jones' early ministry at a place called Sandfields in South Wales. When Martin Lloyd-Jones arrived in Sandfields, the religious climate throughout much of Britain was dire. People were losing confidence in the church's ability to, to address the people's concerns. Listen to Murray's description of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones coming to that church. Again, the church is called Sandfields. He says, reactions to this situation... Now, the issue was that there was all these, basically the same thing that's going on in our world. There, there's, there's question about who Jesus is. There's question about whether we should be, what should we be doing as a church, all of these things. So, so that the situation, just imagine in your mind, somewhat similar to where we are today. So he says, reaction to this situation, when, when Martin Lloyd-Jones came to Sandfields and the situation in Britain, a number of... In, the nonconformity sought to arrest the drift by a change in church services. There were those, for instance, who, critical of the plainness of congregational worship, looked for some kind of liturgy with choir, anthem, and organ give to, to have a major role. 
Others believing that people would not come to church to be preached at. Does that sound familiar? Wished to turn the sermon into an address relevant to the time. Into, or into an essay replete with allusions to authors, poets, and novelists. Do we see that same thing going on in the world today? In South Wales, there was the added weight to the argument that traditional methods would not bring the people back to the chapels. Do we not see that here today? No part of Britain had suffered more from the general strike of 1926, for while others had gone back to work on May 12th, the coal miners, a considerable percentage of the working population of South Wales, had remained out for another six months. Only the threat of starvation was bringing them back. Now, amid those conditions, the case was clearly strong for many who argued that political and economic measures were the first priority. Basically, that the government's going to be the answer, or that we need to deal with the people and get you know make sure they have food and 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 things to the, to live. Even those disposed to it, to give a higher place to religion were tempted to suppose that a population with so many material needs would hardly give attention to anything being preached in chapels. To bridge the gap with those outside, Sandfields, which is again the nickname of this church had maintained various activities, including football, I think that's the soccer type of football, musical evenings, a dramatic society, and a brotherhood on Saturday nights, although with small success. So basically, they'd done all these things uh, that they were trying to bring in of the world. They had done all these things, but they had been, the, the, the church continued to dwindle. Now, when Martin Lloyd-Jones arrived, to the surprise of the church secretary, Martin Lloyd-Jones seemed exclusively interested in the traditional part of church life, which consisted of the regular Sunday services, a prayer meeting on Mondays, and a midweek meeting on Wednesdays. According to Lloyd-Jones, everything else could go. Thus, those activities, particularly designed to attract outsiders, soon came to an end. Now, the demise of the dramatic society posed a practical problem, namely what to do with a wood stage which occupied a part of the church hall. And here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about it. He said, you can heat the church with it. You can cut it up into firewood. That's how, that's, that was his attitude. That's what he said. But they, they went a different direction and gave it to the local YMCA. He also, to describe the Sunday sermons, the Sunday sermons were indirectly to indicate the meaning of these and other changes. The church was to advance, not by approximating the world, but rather by representing the world, to the world, the true life and privilege of the children of God. Now, let me remind you, the authority of the church, one of the authority of the church is not only to make and, and baptize disciples, but what else? To, to be a fellowship, to be a fellowship that is pure. And therefore, we, we perform church discipline to ensure that the church is pure. We have the keys of the kingdom to do that because we represent the kingdom. And so we need to represent in this church, we need to represent uh, to the world the true life and privilege of being the children of God. Do y'all get that? The going, going on, let me finish this quote. The fundamental need was for the church 
to recover an understanding of what she truly is. Then he says this, the business of preaching is not to entertain, but to lead people to salvation and to teach people how to find God, end quote. That's what we need to be about here, brothers and sisters. That's what we are as a church. And we have been given the very authority of heaven to do so. We have been given the very authority of heaven. If you think about making and baptizing disciples, what are we doing? We are advancing the kingdom in this world. If you think about being pure and and being a model for for being children of God to the world, what we're doing is we're showing the world uh, who Christ is because we are His body. And when we do these crazy things, like some guy standing up here yelling a lot, hopefully I'm doing more than yelling. (laughs) When we do this, we are, we are hearing the truth of God's Word. We are being equipped in His Word. As the Word is exposited, we are being equipped so that we may go out and preach and make disciples of the nations. That's the point. That's what we need to be doing, and that is where we're going to be the most powerful. If we want to make a difference in this world, we're not going to present a needy Christ we're not going to present a Christ that's just love and, you know, he just, he's, he's beckoning. He wants you because he's got, they want to have, he wants to have this love relationship with you. That, yes, that's, those things are true. He wants a relationship with you. But he also wants us to proclaim his truth because love and truth go hand in hand. And so I pray that as we go forward as a body that we will understand the authority of Christ and that we will understand what we're really truly accomplishing as we gather together as His body. Let us go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Lord, as we close here, I pray that we would understand the truth of what has been accomplished And that we would stand with men like Martin Lloyd-Jones and others proclaiming the truth of your word. That we wouldn't shrink back. That we would do the things that we state in our philosophy of ministry. That we would exalt you. That when someone from outside comes in and sees what we're doing here, that they would see that we exalt the Lord. That we exalt you, the God of heaven. I pray that we would continue to preach your word, that we wouldn't shrink back, that we would exposit your truth, that we would continue to understand that's where the authority is at. That when we preach your word, we're preaching the word of the King of of heaven. Pray that we would continue to equip the saints. Pray that we would continue to teach all that you command so that our people would come to know You better. I pray that we would have unity of the Spirit. I pray that we would show what it means to be a child of God, children of God, that we would show the power of the church, the power of the body of Christ. And I pray that by Your Spirit, that there would be some to come to know You. 
that, that we would evangelize the lost and we would by all means see some come to, come to know You and become proclaimers. Lord, I pray that Your power and authority would be evident in all that we do. And that we would strip away everything that doesn't matter. That we would focus solely on the things that You would have us do. The things You have given us authority to do. And I pray, Lord, that we would continue to preach Christ crucified. And we wouldn't shrink back from that message. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.